Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thank you, children, and thank you, Pastor Denise, and all our volunteers for making VBS possible. It really does make a difference that we create this sort of uh, event and space and time uh, each summer uh, to shape the lives and the faith of our, our little ones. Good morning, Grantham Church. Great to have you in worship this morning. Uh, We are in a 12-week summer series called Saints and Sinners, and in this sermon series, we are looking at various biblical characters whose lives were messy and broken, just like us, right? And through their stories, we're seeing how God lovingly meets us where we are and works with us despite our past Uh, Maybe our shallow faith, our sin, our doubt, our age, and whatever limitations we might have. He's simply looking for people who will give him their heart, right, and trust him with their life. And in his grace and in our humble submission, the Lord weaves us into his grand story of redemption. We began our series a few weeks ago with Abraham learning to trust God. Last week, we looked at the life of Jacob wrestling with God. And this morning we're giving attention to the life of Moses in a sermon entitled Experiencing God. As you may know, Moses is the most important figure in the Old Testament. He leads the Exodus, he receives the law, he establishes the tabernacle, and he guides Israel for 40 years through the wilderness. But long before Moses did all of that, he was a murderer and an outcast. And so in this third message of our series, I'm inviting us to reflect on Moses' life, his leadership, and how his faith journey and ministry calling began with his first real experience of God. And what we've come to know is Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you again this morning as we reflect on your goodness as well as the brokenness in the world and our own lives, which we are certainly aware of. Holy Spirit, would you help us this morning to be more aware of how you are at work bringing your kingdom to come on the earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we need to be reminded of that. And God, we open up our hearts to you now. We open up our minds and we say, Holy Spirit, have your way with us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you turn with me to the book of Exodus? Grab your Bible. If you don't have one, there are Bibles in the back of the pews in front of you. And turn to the book of Exodus. We're going to be in chapter 2 in just a moment. As I said last week, we looked at the life of Jacob, and Jacob had 12 sons. His second to last son, Joseph, 
His name was Joseph, and through a long series of events, including being sold into slavery by his brothers, eventually he found favor with Pharaoh. He sort of goes from the prison to the palace, right? And, uh, and he becomes the second most powerful person in Egypt. And then the Bible tells us that a famine in the land of Canaan brought the rest of Jacob's family down to Egypt, where he reconciled with them and gave them a place to live in the land of Goshen, just outside of, of the center of Egypt. Years pass, around 400 years or so, and Exodus chapter 1 tells us that the Israelites had multiplied greatly in number. They had become uh, a threat to Pharaoh, the scripture says. And the Bible says that since this Pharaoh did not know of the legacy of Joseph in Egypt, or the history of his people, he enslaved them to carry out his building projects. And so when his harsh treatment didn't slow down their population growth, he became concerned, and then he decrees that all male Hebrew babies be thrown into the Nile, the great river in Egypt. It's a terrible thing, isn't it? It's horrific, because it makes us think uh, later on in the New Testament what King Herod does in trying to snuff out the so-called coming Messiah, which he hears a rumor about. And so that is where the story of Moses begins in Exodus chapter two. We read that Moses' mother devised a plan to save his life by placing the three-month-old Moses in a basket, which can also be translated as ark. So think about that, right? Uh, they, they, They coated it, it says she coated it in tar and pitch. Anybody else do this before? (laughs) Noah, just as Noah had done in the construction of the ark. So this is an obvious hyperlink back to that earlier story of God's deliverance. So she places the basket in the reeds of the Nile where she apparently knew that one of Pharaoh's many daughters went to bathe. I, I can't remember the exact number, but it was said that Pharaoh had like over 60 daughters. So just... You know, picture that. This is just one of them going to the Nile to bathe around the reeds, probably to be safe from uh, the crocodiles. And with Moses' older sister, she's watching and she's listening and she sees that Moses is taken in and adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. Now, the text says that Pharaoh's daughter knew that this was a Hebrew child. And we don't know exactly was he wrapped in sort of Levitical clothing as uh, Uh, The Ten Commandments, uh, Cecil B. DeMille's movie shows, uh, or was it simply because of the timing? Knew that the babies were being thrown into the Nile and here's one floating in the basket? Probably, probably that's the case. And so she, she, um, Pharaoh's daughter knew this was a Hebrew child, but she takes him anyway. And then Moses' sister, Miriam, comes out and says, do you want me to find a Hebrew mother who could nurse him? (laughs) Imagine that. She's got a mother in mind. Of course, it's Moses' real mother. And he's raised by his own mother until he no longer needs to nurse. I do want to stop there for a second and and think here why Pharaoh's daughter would do this, knowing that this is likely a Hebrew that has been thrown into the, or put in the Nile to be saved. Um, How would this even be allowed? That might be a, a question. Maybe his daughter couldn't have children. One thing I think becomes clear in the narrative is that everybody knows who Moses really is, that he's a Hebrew, 
being raised as an Egyptian prince, and it's very likely that her father, the Pharaoh, Ramses, uh, doesn't think too greatly of Moses. Again, this will become clear. Let's just keep, let's keep going here. So it's actually Pharaoh's daughter that gives him the name Moses, meaning he was brought up out of the water. Therefore, Moses grows up knowing that he is a Hebrew, living, as I said, as an Egyptian prince. This would have been a highly privileged position, including the best education and probably Egyptian military training. And we can only imagine that this would have created a conflict within Moses. Put yourself in his shoes, especially as he gets older and watched how his own ethnic family was being treated by Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. And that brings us now to Exodus chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. If you have that, read along with me, please. Many years later, when Moses had grown up, now um, Acts 7.23, if you hold your place, flip over there, this is Stephen in the early church, the very first martyr, he gives a long speech or sermon, and he sort of retells the story of Israel leading up to Jesus. And when he gets to Moses, he gives us details that Exodus doesn't tell us, like that Moses is 40 years old here in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. So many years later, Moses is 40, and Moses had grown up. He went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. That is, in the Hebrew text, the, the Egyptian taskmaster here is repeatedly beating him. Verse 12, after looking in all directions, what's he about to do? <laughs> He's looking around to make sure nobody's watching. It says that Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. So Moses sees this. Yes, of course, this is uh, his own people that is being treated this way, but it strikes a justice nerve in, in Moses. And he looks around to see if anybody's looking, as I said, and he murders this Egyptian thinking that he's gotten away with it. And from the text, the only person that would have seen Moses do this is who? the person he saves. Keep that in mind as well. The next day, when Moses went out to visit his people again, he saw two Hebrew men fighting. And he said, why are you beating up your friend? Moses said to the one who had started the fight, and then verse 14, the man replied, who appointed you to be our prince and judge? Are you going to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Now, now imagine these feelings, the feelings that these Hebrew slaves would have had toward Moses. I think we often miss this. He is a Hebrew, again, a Hebrew Egyptian prince. I wonder if they kind of viewed Moses the same way that some viewed tax collectors in Jesus' day, Jews working for the empire, the, the oppressors. And so here we have Clearly, they're not happy about Moses or maybe what Moses had done. Could it be that the person he saved wasn't too happy about Moses? At least it seems to be the case that people found out because of the one he saved. Moses thought his actions would have been celebrated, maybe at least appreciated, but they weren't. Verse 15, 
Moses was afraid, thinking everyone knows what he did. And sure enough, Pharaoh heard what had happened, and he tried to kill Moses. Now, do you think, and remember I told you to remember that probably Moses was seen as a lesser growing up as a Hebrew Egyptian prince. Do you think it's normally the case that a Pharaoh would react this way to another Egyptian, particularly a prince, doing this to another Egyptian, probably a hired hand, a, a taskmaster. No, no, his immediate response isn't to question him, investigate the situation, but to kill him. This leads me to believe that, e again, everybody knows that the only reason that Moses has any favor is because he is the adopted son of the Pharaoh's daughter. Mm, good to remember this. Now, look what happens. He tried to kill Moses, Moses fled. He fled from Pharaoh, went to live in the land of Midian. He went to live in the land of Midian where he sat down by a well. Uh, now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. Now, so, so look at this here, I've got a map to help visualize where Moses flees to. He leaves the land of Goshen, treks across the Sinai Peninsula, all the way to the land of Midian. Now, now, we're not sure. Midian, probably the Midianites were a nomadic group of shepherds. They probably uh, roamed back and forth um, in the area of the Sinai Peninsula, maybe, maybe even in the area of Mount Sinai. You can see at the bottom of the screen, which is going to come up here in just a minute. Verse 16, I think that's where we're at. Yeah, now the priest of Midian had seven daughters who came as usual to draw water and fill the water troughs for their father's flocks. But some other shepherds came and chased them away. So Moses jumped up and he rescued the girls from the shepherds. Then he drew water from, or for their flocks. Now again, are we seeing sort of this impulse to do justice in Moses, possibly? Uh, it seems that Moses is wired to do something here about the injustice that he sees. Or, of course, maybe he was trying to impress the women. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he even spotted his future wife. Nevertheless, he protects them. And, again, you can see the kind of training that Moses would have had that he takes on this whole group of shepherds and chases them off. So the details that you might not think about, but we got to pay careful attention to notice here. I think all of this helps to, uh, to get a, a, an appropriate portrait of who Moses is. When the girls, verse 18, returned to Reuel, which actually means literally the shepherd of God, this guy is going to go by several names. Later on, they'll name him as Jethro. So their father, he asked, why are you back so soon today? They said, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. And then he drew water for us and watered our flocks. So notice they, they named Moses as an Egyptian. Maybe he's even still wearing some of his Egyptian clothing. Likely that's the case. And then she says that he drew water for us. Wasn't typical of men to do. That was the woman's job. But notice their father's response. Then where is he? Where, why did you leave him there? Invite him to come and eat with us. So one, he's probably thinking, uh, this man protected my daughters, so I'm grateful for them. But, you know, they probably don't see too many men out in the wilderness. And he's got a lot of daughters. So maybe both of those things were on his mind. Moses accepts the invitation, verse 21. He settles there with him. 
with, uh, who will know as Jethro in, in time, Reuel gave Moses his daughter Zipporah to be his wife. Later, she gave birth to a son. Moses named him Gershom, for he explained, I have been a foreigner in a foreign land. That's what Gershom's name means, a foreigner. Verse 23, years passed, and the king of Egypt died. But the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. We understand this to be Ramses I. So Ramses II, his son, will take over. So again, Ramses I is the one who went after Moses to kill him. Often is the case when a king who's decreed something passes away. You remember this again happened with Jesus. Where do they flee to when Herod is trying to kill all the baby uh, Hebrew boys, the firstborn? Where do they flee? Egypt. They come back when? When Herod dies. So you can, you can see maybe even a foreshadowing of that here in the text. So the king of Egypt dies. Israelites continue to groan under the burden of slavery. They cried out for help. Their cry rose up to God. Uh, almost like the incense later on in the tabernacle sort of symbolizes the prayers of the people, the cries of the people going up to heaven. Yeah, maybe smoke machines aren't so bad after all, Pastor Dave. Huh? You know, sort of symbolic, the smoke and the symbolic of the prayers of the people, the cries of the people. They go up to God. God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob. So this is part of that grand redemptive narrative. He looked down on the people of Israel and he knew that it was time to act. Now chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Now chapter 3 and chapter 4 are a literary unit, so we're going to look at those quickly together. Now, now the text says, um, this is sometime later, Acts chapter 7 again, Stephen's speech, verse 30, 7 verse 30, says that this is now 40 more years later. So how old does that make Moses? Let's see if you're paying attention. 80, what is the deal with God working with really old people? No, listen, I, I say this as encouragement. Because I have recognized as a pastor, we, people get to a certain age in the church and they think they're done. Or maybe that God's done with them. This is good news. It doesn't matter. As we said at the beginning of the description of this sermon series, right? It, it doesn't matter your age or your limitations. God can work. Moses probably thought, you know, he's all washed up. He's, he's passed way past his prime but yet this is when God starts to do the really interesting stuff. That should be a huge encouragement to all of us. So on the day Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, notice that they changed his name there, he led the flock far into the wilderness and he came to Sinai, the mountain of God. Now, it, it's probably the case it wasn't known as the mountain of God at the time, but remember this, this is many years later they're reading this. They're simply identifying that this mountain would be known later as the mountain of God. I think that's important to notice here because Moses is not expecting a religious experience here. And by the way, your text may say Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb and Sinai are two different names for the same mountain. So Moses is not expecting any spiritual or religious experience. Verse 2, there the angel of the Lord appeared to him 
in a blazing fire from the middle of the bush. Now, the angel of the Lord shows up several times in the Old Testament. Um, you actually heard from the angel of the Lord when Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac. The angel of the Lord stops him. Who is this mysterious figure known as the angel of the Lord? Some have tried to say this might be some um, pre-incarnate Jesus. I, I, I want to be careful with that. I think this is a sign pointer to Jesus, God in the flesh. But what happens in the incarnation is, has never before happened. It is extremely significant, so I'm not willing to say that. But what we should say is the angel of the Lord is Yahweh made visible. The Hebrews are going to know this in the Old Testament. God is not a man. This is why they struggle with the idea of Jesus, right? He's, he's going to say, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Before Abraham was born, what does he say? I am. And that's going to come up here in Moses' experience, the name I am. So Yahweh is made visible through this angel of the Lord. And there's a paradox here. It's God, but distinct from God. The angel of the Lord is, is God appearing, appearing like a human, but Jesus will literally be God becoming human flesh. Important to keep those separate, I think. So something strange is happening. Moses sees a bush that's on fire but not burning up. He stares at it in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn. This is amazing, he said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go and see it. Verse 3 there, I must go see it. Now, why a burning bush? Is this, um, maybe thinking, is this a natural phenomenon or is this something entirely supernatural happening here? And I would just want to say, you know, we shouldn't be so dogmatic that everything that God does has to be supernatural. And don't be so biased with our Western Enlightenment rationalistic thinking that nothing can be supernatural. In fact, you're going to see with the plagues of Egypt, which we won't get to today, but if you keep reading this week and finish out the story of Moses, you'll see that the plagues of Egypt were both a mix of what seems to be supernatural. The only explanation is something out of the ordinary happened. And then others are very natural. For example, the Nile turning to blood. That's not an ordinary kind of thing, is it? But frogs coming out of the Nile spreading lice and, and flies and disease is natural. So you see a mix of that. Whatever it was, it got Moses' attention. Whatever is happening, it should be clear that God chose a common desert bush, as God often chooses common everyday things to get our attention. God is holy, not the bush. <laughs> God is holy, not the bush. This is not some alien bush. It's just a common bush. A reminder that God can use anything to manifest his presence, brothers and sisters. But will we see it? And will we be curious like Moses to go check it out? And Moses does that. He says, I must go see it. I must go see it. I recently listened to a podcast episode. I listen to several podcasts regularly. One of them is called Undeceptions with John Dixon. He's uh, Australian, so, you know, like British folks, he's fun to listen to. Uh, he's also a historian, a scholar, and an Anglican pastor. Uh, really great stuff. And he's always interviewing experts on various topics. This one just happened to be on Soren Kierkegaard, who is a Danish philosopher, was a Danish philosopher and theologian, and how Kierkegaard understood faith. 
He, he was the one, I think, who first coined the phrase a leap of faith. But what he meant by it is not what many sort of scientism folks mean, the rationalist thinkers mean today when they, when they hear or use that phrase, leap of faith, as, as if we're taking a step into the complete unknown without any evidence or signs. That's not what Kierkegaard meant. Essentially, he says, faith involves the mind as well as mystery and spiritual insights and experiences. Reason alone isn't enough. So what, what this worldview, if you don't know this, you can Google it later, scientism, that is all that's real and true is what science and the natural world can teach us. Folks, it's not a biblical worldview. You know, science is good and we should listen and follow the best science. This is true. And it can teach us a lot about the natural world that God has created. But to create some artificial ceiling, as I've said before, and say that anything outside of that isn't real, well, flies in the face of what the Bible teaches us about God's universe. That there are other dimensions, there are other spheres to reality that we don't normally see with the naked eye. And that, that's what it means to be a person of faith, that we don't have an artificial ceiling. Reason is good, and we're not asking people to go against it. We're asking and help people to see it goes beyond it. Faith goes beyond it. See, the problem with reason alone is Amber Bowen, who's a historian on Kierkegaard, says in this episode, she says, God can only be, if we're just operating out of reason, God can only be what our reason allows him to be. And you know what studies actually show us is if we're only operating according to reason, according to reason then what we typically do is only fashion God in an image that really seems to look like us. And only that we understand. One that can be contained and controlled. But if we're really going to experience God, and, and she's saying this, Amber's saying this in this episode, as Kierkegaard believed, then we have to make room for God to go beyond what we can comprehend and understand. If your view of God and your experience of God doesn't leave you speechless and in awe and seeing the mystery, then folks, your view of God's too small. And if you're just operating off of reason, then you're not gonna leave room for some burning bush experiences. And ultimately, it's just dry and empty. Believe me, I've been there, I get it. Therefore, we've got to be extremely careful in limiting God because of a closed mind and a hard heart in this artificial ceiling worldview. You know, and remember, as brethren in Christ, our first value states that we believe in experiencing God's love and grace. Experiencing God's love and grace, not just thinking about God's love and grace. Amen? Back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 4. When the Lord, remember that's all caps, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh, the covenantal name for God. When Yahweh saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses. Anytime you see a name repeated in the scripture, it's really supposed to get the attention of the person. It stops them in their tracks. And Moses said, here I am. We hear other Old Testament figures say this. Abraham said this when God called on him to take Isaac to Mount Moriah. Later on, we'll hear the prophet Isaiah say this, here I am, send me. It is a way of saying, I'm here, I'm available, I'm open, I'm submissive, what do you need from me? So this is it, Moses' heart is open to God. Do not come any closer, Yahweh warned. Take off your sandals, for you're standing on holy ground. Now think about this, I heard Tony Evans recently say that a half an inch of leather 
between Moses' foot and the ground was too high for Moses. God needed to bring him lower to the dirt and recognize that nothing is special about this place except that God has shown up in it. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, how old did we say Moses is? 80, first experience with God. Heard stories about it, probably was old enough to remember it from his mother, and then I'm sure Jethro, Jethro seemed to be a follower of Yahweh, taught him some things as well. But here, at 80 years old, his first real experience with God, and now it's connecting him to the story of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Wow, wow, when Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. It's probably a brightness. There's many times in the scripture, God is depicted as a blinding light. Yahweh told him, verse seven, I've certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians, lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. Now again, this is connecting us back to the promise of Abraham, right? It is a land flowing with milk and honey. It's just simply a, a way of saying it's a fertile, prosperous land. It's part of the, what we call the fertile crescent in the Middle East. This land where currently the Canaanites and the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites are all different groups of people. They now live there. God is again saying, I promise you, I'm going to give you this land for it to be your own. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I've seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now go, for I'm sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. Now at this point, you might be thinking, 80 years old, an amazing experience with God, right? So far, amazing experience of God. God's saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to do all this. And you're like, whoa, like this is exciting. But look at Moses' response. Look at Moses' response. He protested to God. Uh, God, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? See, Moses missed it. This is about God. This isn't about him. Do you ever miss it? <laughs> it's about God. It's not about you. It's about God. Now, let's not be too hard on Moses. This text, or another place says he was one of the most humble people in all of Israel, if not the most humble people. So maybe he's showing a little humility here, but you're going to notice with every excuse and objection, we, we eventually find out Moses just doesn't want to do it. <laughs> He's struggling. He's struggling with this. He's 80. Like this wasn't the way he saw his life going. And remember what happened back in Egypt. Remember the last time that he tried to help his fellow Hebrews. What happened? They didn't seem to be a fan of Moses. So he's a little skeptical. You ever been skeptical? Or wonder how God's going to do something or why he's doing Who am I to lead the people of Israel? God answered, Moses, I will be with you, and this is your sign that I am the one who has sent you when you have brought the people up out of Egypt. You will worship God at this very mountain. You're going to go get them. You're going to bring them here to worship me. I will reveal myself to them. But Moses protested again. 
Uh, God, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, well, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? And then God replied to Moses, and here we're given new insight, a new name of God. God says, I am who I am. This is actually the to be verb in Hebrew. That is, I will be present. I am the ever living, the only living God. There's no place that you can go that I am not, that I will not be. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. Now go, call together all the elders of Israel and tell them, and he says the same thing. Tell them what I've told you. I promise to rescue you, verse 17, from the oppression in Egypt. I'll lead you to land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 18, the elders of Israel will accept your message. Listen, God's, how often does God give us this much information? Not, not often. But he's given Moses a whole lot more information than he would most of us. He's telling Moses what's going to happen. They're going to accept you. Then you and the elders must go to the king of Egypt and tell him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So please let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to Yahweh, our God. Now later, if you read the story, Pharaoh is going to laugh at this. (laughs) Who is this? I don't know this God. Get out of my sight. Verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand forces him. So I will raise my hand and strike the Egyptians, performing all kinds of miracles among them. Then at the last, he will let you go. I will cause the Egyptians to look favorably on you. They will give you gifts when you go, so you will not leave empty-handed. Right? Stuff for the journey. Every Israelite woman will ask for articles of silver and gold and fine clothing from her Egyptian neighbors and from the foreign women in their houses. You will dress your sons and daughters with these, stripping the Egyptians of their wealth. And we will learn that it's not just Hebrews that leave, but there are also Egyptians who believe in Yahweh and go with them. And Moses continues with his skepticism and objections in chapter 4. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Moses protested again. Now, Lord, I'm, I'm checking with you, but what, what, what if, what if, <laughs> what if they don't believe me? What if they don't listen to me? What if they say, Yahweh never appeared to you? <laughs> what then? Then Yahweh asked Moses, Moses, what's that in your hand? Moses said, a shepherd's staff. Now, this would have been a staff with a crook. This is one of the things they used as a tool in shepherding. It's important to remember later on. He's not carrying some sort of, uh, you know, one of those sticks that you use in martial arts. This isn't a weapon, but it's a shepherd's tool. God said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw down the staff, and it turned into a snake. Moses jumped back. Some scholars believe this may be a cobra. Pharaoh on the staff, it's believed on his staff, had the head of a what? Cobra. You know what's going to happen later on is Moses squares off with the sorcerers of Egypt and the staff he throws down that turns into snake eats the other (laughs) snakes. Yeah. So this is clearly an act of God. No magic tricks. And then God says, perform this sign. They'll believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob really has appeared to you. Then the Lord said to Moses, now put your hand inside your cloak. 
So Moses puts his hand in, pulls it out. He sees that he has leprosy, puts it back in, it's gone. This is not only going to convince just the Hebrews, it'll also do a number on the Egyptians. Verse 8, then Yahweh said to Moses, if they do not believe you and are not convinced by the first miraculous sign, they will be convinced by the second. If they don't believe you or listen to that second sign, then take, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground. This is, see, this is like a, 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 a rehearsal for what is, is about to happen in Egypt. And so Moses pleads with the Lord in verse 10, oh God, I'm not very good with words. You know this, surely. I've never been. And I'm not now. And even though you've spoken to me, I've, I've, I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. Now, this is interesting. It doesn't seem like he always had a speech impediment. <laughs> I mean, he said earlier, that he, you know, he grew up a prince of Egypt. He's well-educated. He, he was great and powerful in speech, it said. What happened? Was it because he got older? Or maybe because he's just trying to find an excuse. We never do that. Just him. He says, I'm just not good at talking. And then the Lord asked Moses, who made a person's mouth? <laughs> who made your mouth, Moses? Who made your mouth? Who decides whether people speak or don't speak, hear or don't hear? Huh? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, verse 12. I'll be with you as you speak, and I will instruct you in what to say. And you would think, okay, he gets it now. Huh? But Moses again pleads, Lord, please send somebody else. So it really, it comes down, they seem kind of, you know, understandable at first. Maybe he's being humble. But as you go, the objections seem like Moses just doesn't want to do it. Hmm. What verse am I on? <laughs> 14, thank you. Yahweh became angry. Do you blame him? It's like, Moses, look, I've already told you what's going to happen. I told you I'm going to go with you. I'm going to tell you, I'll tell you what to say. I'll tell you there are going to be miracles. They're going to believe you. And you're just making excuses. You ever thought that God gets just a little perturbed with you and your excuses? Uh, well, think about it. You know, he can still be the God who looks like Jesus and get a little frustrated. Remember, Jesus said that. He came down from the mountain after, uh, after the, the transfiguration. He comes down. The disciples, they encounter uh, demons. They can't cast them out. And what does Jesus say? Oh, you wicked and perverse generation, how long must I put up with you? So sometimes God gets tired of our excuses and our incompetence simply because we don't believe in him. So, yet, look at the love and the grace of God. He's still going to accommodate Moses. He's still going to accommodate Moses. All right. What about your brother, Aaron, the Levite? Would you feel better if he went? You know, I know he speaks well. And, and look, he's on his way to meet you now. Uh, some scholars connect this to the death of the king of Egypt, right? He died. Moses says, I'm going to go let, or Aaron says, I'm going to let Moses know this. Maybe this is why Aaron is on the way. He'll be delighted to see you. Talk to him. Put the words in his mouth. I'll be with both of you as you speak, and I will instruct you both in what to do. Aaron will be your spokesman to the people. He will be your mouthpiece, and you will stand in the place of God for him, telling him what to say. Take your shepherd's staff with you and use it to perform the miraculous signs that I have shown you. And so this tool for sheep becomes a tool of miracles, showing the power 
of God. You know, if we had time to keep reading the Exodus story, we would read that Moses goes with Aaron to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. You know, I, I can't help but hear that in the Charlton Heston voice, right, from the Ten Commandments, let my people go, you know. So he leads thousands, if not hundreds of thousands in an exodus out of Egypt. And despite much complaining from the people, they don't go easy, right? Moses continues to intercede on their behalf. We see this a couple times. God, uh, Moses pleading with God not to wipe the people out, not to forget them, not to forget his covenant. You know, I also think God was trying to work something in Moses, get his character in Moses, that he would share his own heart, which is long-suffering and merciful and full of grace. Moses receives the Ten Commandments. We know this story on Mount Sinai. He gives the law to the people. He establishes the tabernacle as a way of leading people into an experience of God. I think another accommodation of God to meet people where they are and the whole idea of tabernacle, eventually temple worship. He's continually used by God as an instrument of his power and faithfulness. As we see, though, Moses wasn't perfect, was he? He certainly wasn't up to this point, and he isn't as his ministry continues. He gets angry on several occasions and isn't allowed to go into the promised land because of a moment of anger, of pride, and of arrogance when he strikes the rock. And so while Moses was a flawed human being, we can also see how he foreshadows the coming Messiah in God's story. He even prophesied it himself. If you flip over to Deuteronomy 18, Verse 15 through 18, he's speaking to the generation after the Exodus uh, folks and in, in, in speaking to those that are about to inherit the land. And he said that a greater prophet would come. And Hebrews to this day don't believe that prophet has come. The Jewish folks, right? That are Orthodox Jews. Uh, but we do. We believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We know that Jesus is God in the flesh, the one who works his will and his power out through our broken lives particularly through our weaknesses. Remember what the Apostle Paul wrote in the midst of his own struggle and weaknesses. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 and 10, he said, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. You're 80 years old, still got weaknesses, don't fret. Listen to Paul. Listen to this veteran, this apostle. I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Why? Because it's when I am weak that I'm strong. Christ's power shows itself through me. God gets the glory when he does things through me despite my sin, my mistakes, my weaknesses. This is why for Christ's sake, he said, I delight in it. I delight in weaknesses in insults and in hardships and persecutions and in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So what can we learn then from Moses' life as we reflect on his story and think about this principle of how God works with us despite our shortcomings, despite our weaknesses? Here are a few things. We've been doing this each week. Lessons from the character. Here's some lessons from Moses. We see that Moses was unclear about his identity and purpose until he experienced God. Are you unclear about your identity and purpose? Maybe it's time for a fresh experience with God. You know, I've noticed that in my own journey that any time, well, before God is preparing or as he's preparing to do something new, 
it usually is preceded by a new experience with God. Maybe you need that this morning. Think about this with the life of Moses. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how cynical and skeptical and how many excuses you've used. God can get your attention. God can work with you. Also, we see God can overcome your midlife mistakes, as he did with Moses. Folks, he murdered a guy. Now, there were 40 years of deconstruction and reconstruction, 40 years of being in the wilderness, which we see the next point. God uses the wilderness to develop our character and prepare us for greater things. And this story is a great reminder that that wilderness, folks, could be 40 years, as it will also be with the people of Israel. But don't ever lose hope. It's never too late if our hearts are open to be used by God. We also see another lesson here. True leaders have, have to be tested in the fire, don't they? They have to be willing to take risks as Moses was. They have to be willing to take the hits and still be willing to intercede for griping, complaining people. I don't know how that applies to you, maybe in the church context or at your job or maybe with family members. But let the Lord speak to your heart about this. And and in some way or another, we are all leaders. Someone is looking up to us. And then lastly, as we've seen with each character so far in this series, Moses was both a saint and a sinner. And this gives us, folks, this gives us hope. Finally, here are a few questions for reflection and response. Can you see yourself in Moses? Think about just the part that we've seen. You can read the rest of the story for yourself. But in the part that we've seen this morning, how do you see yourself reflected in Moses? Was there a point in the story in me speaking to you that the Holy Spirit was putting his finger on something for you? Recalling something that's happened in your life or maybe something God is doing with you now? Would you think about that? Stay open to the Lord's voice. Number two, like Moses, or maybe you're here this morning, and if you're honest, you're making excuses. Maybe they started off humble enough, honest and legitimate enough, but as God continues to knock at your door and speak to your heart, you're making excuses, and when it comes down to it, you would just say, God, I just don't want to do this. Would, would you like the Lord speak to you? And if you're making those excuses, would you just, just stop doing that? <laughs> lastly number three how is God inviting you to experience him afresh to grow as a leader where he's placed you and trust him to do what he says you know I I know that we all come into this sanctuary we're in different places and seasons of life different stages of life different backgrounds and experiences different families different jobs vocations But I trust that the Spirit is speaking to you this morning. Would you let him tailor make the application for you and the invitation to you and respond to his voice with submission and obedience? Let's pray together. Father, we we are so thankful, Lord, that we can look at these characters and see there is nothing really special about them they just 
said yes to you, even if it was eventually. (laughs) And God, you used them. Would you help us this morning to say yes to you? Holy Spirit, make it clear what you're saying about our situation in life, what you're asking us to do. And give us the strength through the power of the Holy Spirit, despite our weaknesses, to do what you're asking of us. In Christ's holy name that we pray. And all God's people said.